before we get into John 6, or while you find it, we're going to start in one of the weirdest places on the planet, the internet. The internet, exactly. The internet was begun as a collaborative thing to share information, and now we have found many, many uses for it. One of the things that we have found that it is useful for is gathering an audience by making a spectacle of ourselves or something else. Right? And so the internet does this in a variety of ways, quite often by putting two things that we wouldn't think go together, but actually do go together. Not like peanut butter and chocolate, which was a no-brainer and was probably done thousands and thousands of years ago, but putting things like maybe tuna fish and chili together, or, or I, I just need to slip that in, or Cats and the band Queen for a song called a song called Bohemian Catsity, right? You, wouldn't, you did not come here thinking, you know what? Queen, yes. But now you're intrigued, but I'm not gonna show it to you because, yeah, you can look that up on your own. It looks like six million people already looked at it. Six million of your closest friends have already kind of signed off on that because we love a spectacle. We love to see things that we have never seen before. And usually when somebody sets the bar, what's the next person got to do? Got to go a little bit higher than that bar. And I think that's what was behind the motive behind this chicken that we're about to see. No way. That's what I said, by the way. words. I mean, the chicken's better at piano than I am. Is that what I, I mean? But it doesn't matter because two weeks from now, somebody's going to put something else playing it because we love a spectacle that had 24 million views, by the way, because that's something we hadn't seen before. And we love things that we haven't seen before, but sometimes we love even more than that is when somebody takes things that we have seen before, like kicking a soccer ball or hanging keys on a ring, and does things with that that we have never seen before. Take a look at this. Putting a ball into the bin. Putting a book on the bookshelf, turning off a light, handing somebody keys, 240 million views. Because it's not something that we see every day. The reason you're late to work once a month is because there's flashing blue lights that aren't even on your side of the street. <laughs> Which all testify to the truth that we love a spectacle. We love to see something unique and different. 
And some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the spectacle because he was doing things that defied explanation. He would put his hands on blind people and they would see. He would tell people to go take a bath and they would come out of the bath without leprosy. He would say things that were undermining the fabric of their society but were so smart that they could not be ignored. He was literally something that the world had never seen before and so we showed up to watch him. Some 2,000 years ago in the chapter in which we find ourselves, Jesus is never more popular because it doesn't matter when you were born, people love a spectacle. And this is my favorite passage of scripture that we're gonna go through. And I know scripture is supposed to be like your children. You're not supposed to have a favorite one. And I follow that rule, especially since I have children in here today. (laughs) I adhere to that rule but I do not adhere to the favorite passage of scripture rule. This is my favorite passage of scripture and it is because these people are me. I would have made the trip to see the guy that can make deaf people hear. I would have made the trip to see the guy that when he tells the storm to go away, it stops. I would have made the trip to see the spectacle that is Jesus, and I would have asked the same questions. Their confusion would have been my confusion. Their words would have been my words. I can see myself in this passage, and I think that's the reason that I love it. So we find him never more popular than he ever will be. Jesus is so popular that he and his closest disciples have kind of retreated to a mountain, and they see thousands of people coming out to them. And Jesus asks his disciple, Philip, he says, hey, where are we gonna buy some food that all of these people can eat? They can't go back to the village. They're already kind of way out here where we are. We can't send them back hungry. So where are we gonna buy some food that all of these people could eat? And Philip goes, what are you talking about? We could work for 220 days. We could take 220 day wages and we would only be able to buy enough so that one person could get one bite. Like, this is a foolish endeavor. And then Andrew offers what I consider perhaps to be the most useless suggestion ever. He says, hey, Jesus, I've got this guy that's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And I can imagine everybody looking at him like, that and a dollar, and we have a dollar and five breads and two. Like, you have not solved a problem, unhelpful one. You, have, you, you haven't moved this ball one inch. But Jesus says, okay, he takes it, he prays, and he feeds the 5,000 men. And we don't know how many women and children, but I don't think it is an exaggeration to say he feeds about 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he tells his disciples to collect the leftovers, and they collect 12 baskets of leftovers. They have more leftover than what they began with. So you can see where the spectacle comes in. What is left over after he's done feeding is more than what he began with. And one of his followers, John, recorded this. He's following Jesus at this time. He sees how this goes down and he records the people's response. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. These are very smart people and they're connecting the dots. Moses said, hey, God is going to send a prophet. Moses got manna in the wilderness. He fed the people bread and then freed, they were freed from slavery. 
He freed them, then fed them. And Jesus is, is doing the same thing. He's just doing it in reverse. He's fed us miraculously. And now he's going to free us from the Romans. This is fantastic. We've, our long wait is over. The prophets, the prophet that Moses prophesied about is here among us. And they wanted to make him king. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king so badly that they did not plan on asking his opinion about it. If he refused, they were going to say, no, you don't have that option because you are obviously the right man for the job. Nobody is doing things that you could do. You could raise an army with your power that wouldn't have to fight. Literally, the wind and the waves obey you. How could the Romans not? You are the guy, whether you know it or not. But before they could enact their plan, Jesus withdraws. Nighttime falls. The disciples travel across the lake. Jesus follows them sometime after. And when the people wake up, they look around. They see no Jesus. They see no disciples. So they take off after the lake because they're not done. Show's not over. We have an agenda. We want to make this guy king. We're going to hunt him down. We're going to find him. We're going to tell him what he needs to do. And then he's going to do it, whether he wants to or not. They're not done with Jesus, so they go hunt him down. And when they find him, they say, hey, man, how did you get here? Why did you leave? How did you get across this lake so quickly? And this is how Jesus answers them. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, look, I love you guys, but you're following me for the wrong reason. You're following me because I gave you some food. You should be following me because I just performed a sign that means I'm something a little bit different than the king you want to make me. You see it, but you do not interpret it correctly. He continues, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He says, man, don't waste your life working for this food that spoils. You ate it, and then it was yesterday, so now you're hungry again. And you're seeking me out, not because you see who I truly am. You're seeking me out because you're hungry again, and you know that I can solve that need. But there's another life that's bigger than this life, a life that God has called you to. Work for that life where the food doesn't spoil and you're not hungry again. Don't waste all your energy looking at the need that's in front of you. Look to the next life, which is more significant and more important. This is the eternal life that God has called you to, and they are intrigued because they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? That's a great question. We want some of what you just told us. We want to be filled and then never hunger again. Because in this culture, you spent a large part of your day hunting for food or procuring food or storing food or buying food. Your life was centered around where your next meal was coming from. We want in on this. We knew you were the prophet. We knew you could make our lives better. What is the work that we have to do to get this life? And the answer shocks them. 
Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Not what they were expecting at all. Not what you and I are expecting. We would, truth be told, much prefer it if Jesus has said, here's the checklist that you need to do to make sure that you have eternal life. Here's the thing. You gotta read your Bible once a day. At least one chapter, less than a chapter doesn't cut it. You gotta pray twice a day. Once in the morning when you wake up because you gotta start your day with God. And once in the evening before you go to bed because you gotta end your day with God. And then sneak in whatever you want to in the middle. You're good if you've done those two things. And you should probably let your neighbor borrow your tools Whenever he or she asks, knowing full well they will not return them, because that's a nice thing to do. So you should probably do some of that. And you know what? You say too many swear words. You need to cut that in half. But if you read your Bible once a day, at least a chapter, and you pray twice a day, and you're nice to the people around you, and you don't say naughty no-no words, then you have done the work that Jesus required, and you can be sure that you will have eternal life. But he doesn't do that for a lot of reasons. But one reason he doesn't do that is who's the hero of that story? You and I are, because we made the mark. We got up to where the requirement was. We hit the holy checklist, and now we have earned eternal life. He says, no, that's not how that works. You have eternal life if you believe the one who God has sent. So they have more questions. They ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And this is how you can tell Jesus is so different from Jason. Because I would go, what? Why are you following me? You're following me because the blind see and those with broken legs walk. And I just fed you with a kid's lunchbox yesterday. (laughs) What more do you want? But when we look at it, that's us. What one more sign will you show me, God, so that I know that giving my life to you is worth it in the end? I know you've shown me this in the past. And I know you've revealed that to me. But memories get fuzzy. And now I'm not sure that that was you. It might have been you. And now I'm not sure that really came from you, God. So just just show me one more time. Just show me one more time that you'll show up for me. Show me one more time that that wasn't just coincidence when all that worked out. Show me one more time that that tragedy that I went through, that you were there for me in that. Show me one more sign, God, that you are who you say you are. That's me. That's most of us. They continue, because they have an idea, like we do, about what that sign should be. We very rarely say, God, show me any sign. We always say, God, show me a sign, and please let it be this one. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus answers them saying, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, don't get it twisted. Moses did not give you the bread. My dad, God did. 
Don't get that twisted. And when he gave it to them, they ate, and then they needed to eat again, and then they needed to eat again, and ultimately they didn't need to eat again because they died. But I am the bread of life. I come from heaven. Work for food that does not spoil. And they are all in on that. They answer, sir, give us this bread. And Jesus says, all right, remember what you asked for. Because here is where it really starts to get interesting. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, I've already said this once, you have, come, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He says, I am the bread. I am the forever bread. You want to make me a king because you want me to make your life here easier. You want the Romans out. You want my protection and you want my food and you can have all of that, but that's not all you can have. You can have so much more than that, but you're missing it because you literally do not see what is standing in front of you. God's will, you wanna know the work that God wants from you? God's will is that you look at me, the one he has sent, and that you believe in me, and then you have eternal life. Then you have a life during which you will never hunger, and you will never thirst, and you will live in the presence of God, and you will be fully satisfied, not because I give you bread every day, because when that moment comes, and when you are raised up from this life, you are fully satisfied in the presence of the living God, and I am the bread that satisfies. I am the work that you need to do. You can imagine that this was a less than popular response because this is what they say. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? Reason 107 why this is my favorite passage of scripture. That is exactly what I would have said. Bro, we ate lunch together at school. <laughs> you did not come from heaven. I know your mom and dad. His name is Joseph. Her name is Mary. What is, what is this come down from heaven stuff? They grumble amongst each other. And Jesus answers them pretty sternly. He says, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. Step up and let's have some real talk here because we know we don't really want the truth when we don't go to the source. You don't really want to resolve conflict when you're doing the talk behind the back, when you're grumbling amongst yourselves, when you're rallying the troops you call your friends. They're not searching for the truth here. 
They're searching for the excuse to not believe the truth, and so they're gone in their echo chamber think tank. They're getting their news from the source that they like. They're only talking to people that share the same viewpoint, and they're grumbling amongst themselves, and Jesus says, nope, you're going to stop that right now. It's real talk time. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, doubling and tripling down on it. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the light of the world. He says, you're missing it again. I am eternal life standing in front of you. I am the very thing that you say that you want, and I am three feet from your face, and you are missing it because you see me as you wish I was and not as I actually am, and you are willing to go through very adept mental gymnastics to keep it that way. As you can imagine, they weren't particularly thrilled with this answer either. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, a brilliant question. You are the bread of life. How, how does that work? How does me consuming you make me anything but weird? Great questions. And here is where it gets really weird. So you better buckle up. <laughs> Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I warned you. <laughs> For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And this is the part where we see he's not really concerned about being a spectacle. And he's not really concerned about gathering an audience. He's not going to let them misunderstand who he is. He says, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. You have to, and as if two times was not enough, he's gonna say it again. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this teaching while in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's not hiding out. This isn't a secret that he's trying to keep. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And here in the year 2022, we go, what? That makes no sense. But his audience at that time would have understand, understood very specifically what he was talking about. Because we don't sacrifice anymore, but they did. And he's saying this right before the Passover festival, which every good Jewish boy and Jewish girl knew that your family would have to take a perfect, not sick, unblemished, one-year-old male lamb to the temple 
that lamb would have to be sacrificed. Part of that lamb would go on an altar to God and fire would be administered and it would burn, symbolizing that God had consumed or eaten that lamb. And you would take part of that lamb back to your house and you would have a Passover meal with your family where your family would eat part of that lamb. And the symbolism of this is that God has eaten part of this perfect lamb and you have eaten part of this perfect lamb. And what this means in Jewish culture cannot be understated because if you ate with somebody, you were approving them. This is why the religious leaders went nuts on Jesus whenever he sat down with a tax collector or a prostitute or someone that was deemed a sinner. He literally goes with one of his disciples, Matthew, who invites a bunch of sinners over to dinner. And they go to his followers, the religious elite, and they say, how can your rabbi eat with these people? Which in our language would be saying, how can your rabbi say these people are okay with God? How doesn't he know? It, it calls them all into question. They start postulating how this could be true by saying he can't perform these miracles by God because God would never eat with these people. He has to be performing these miracles by the devil because we do not have a category for a rabbi that sits down with tax collectors. This cannot happen. So there's got to be an alternate explanation. So they knew what he was claiming. He was saying, hey, when I showed up for my baptism and that guy, John, that you all love, pointed at me and said, there goes the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he was right. I am the final sacrifice. I am eternal life. I will give my flesh and my blood to bring you back to a loving God that you walked away from. And we remember that because at a Passover meal, he stopped the meal and broke bread and said, this is my body, which I give for you. And then he poured wine and he said, this is my blood that I spill for you. He is saying, I am the sacrifice that you've been waiting for. In my flesh resides salvation. And in my blood resides the very love of God that knits the fabric of our universe together, and I'm here at God's will to give myself to you. But this message was of no comfort to them. On hearing it, on hearing this teaching, that he is the Passover lamb, that he is the son of God, his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They said, ah, uh, we did not sign up for this. We came to see the show. We like the magic tricks. We like the, the people that couldn't walk walking. We love the free food. We didn't sign up for this I am God stuff. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, tells them, does this offend you? then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? What if you see me go back up to my dad? Would you believe then? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. He says, you're here for the show, show's over. 
I did not come to gather an audience. I came to save the world. I did not come so that you would work for food that spoils. I came so that when you saw me, you saw eternal life and were reconciled to God. But you can't see because you're looking at me with closed eyes. You're blinded by the way that you wish it was and not the way that it is. Here is the truth. You only get two options. It's like mama's dinner table. Here is the truth. Take it or leave it. And we see that many of them left it. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It was too much. We wanted a better life, not life redefined. To coin the favorite movie, they could not handle the truth. But not everybody left. Jesus turned to the 12 and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And this is the payoff today. We have literally covered 67 verses for the delivering of this scripture so that we could hear what hopefully becomes our response in the words of Peter when Jesus turns and say, why aren't you guys gone? Don't you want to leave too? Peter answered him saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. He says, where else are we gonna go? You have cornered the market on truth. And truth is a very funny thing. When you add a little bit to it, guess what it becomes? Not truth. When you take a little bit from it, and here's the one we really struggle with. When we take a little bit from it, guess what truth becomes? Not truth. We detest that one because we believe that what is provable is true. If I can prove it, then it must be true. Not true. What is true is true. And God works in simple, powerful truths. Not our clever reimagination, reimaginings of the truth. Not our clever retellings of the truth. Not where we skew it just a little bit left to make it just a little bit more palatable. God works in the simple truth. And Peter realizes this, and the ones that stayed realize this and go, where else are we gonna go? We want eternal life. We want to live in the truth. And we recognize that the one truth that we can hang our hat on is that you are the Holy One of God. And we believe that. Where else will we go? And if you decide that Jesus is who he says he is, and if you say, I follow, the Holy One of God, you will come to multiple points in your walk where you will be asked to do very difficult things, insane things, like love your enemies. Love doesn't mean moderately tolerate them. Love means will that good things happen to your enemies. Go ahead and try that sometime. See how easy that is. That requires the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. He's gonna ask you to do crazy things. Take chances that defy the odds. And in that moment, you, like the people in this passage, will choose between what is easy and what is true. 
And it won't be some concept of morality or some concept of religion or some concept of obligation that holds you to the truth. It will be the question that Peter poses, where else can I go? Your ability to follow Jesus will forever be linked to what you think of him. If he exists to make your life easier, if you are trying to make him king of this world, so that your bills get paid and your kids behave and you always get straight A's, you will be sorely disappointed when you read the rest of John's eyewitness account and you find out the guy we followed lived the last three years of his life homeless and ultimately walked to his murder. There will be points in your life where you have to choose between easy and you have to choose between truth. And in those moments, it behooves us all, it is to our advantage to remember that truth is not a concept, truth is a person. The Holy One of God. And the work that we have to do is believe in the one that he has sent. Many of us struggle with that. Many of us struggle to find faith. Many of us, I would wager dollars to donuts that there are many people in this room struggling right now. Should I leave the faith? And I would implore you not to dig in on the works of the faith, but to dig in on the person of the faith. Ask yourself, who is Jesus Christ? Even better than that, there's gonna be fine men and women up here on the right and left of the stage that would love to talk with you, to answer questions about who is Jesus Christ. So immediately following the service, be bold, come find one of them and say, I have questions about the Christ. I want to know what it looks like to follow the Christ. Because at the end of the day, what you think about Jesus Christ determines literally everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you that the work that we have to do is within our capabilities. We could have not worked hard enough to please you. We could have not put back to rights what we corrupted, but Father, you can and you did and you are the hero of the story. Let us always remember that you are the Holy One and the work that we have to do is to believe in the one you sent. I ask for those who are struggling, who are tossing back and forth, that they would be bold enough to come up to the men and women and ask those questions, and they would affirm that you are who you say you are. And those of us that live in the community would ever be on the lookout for those who are in need of the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things by the power of your spirit and in your son's name. Amen.